Let's set the scene. We're going to dive in, but let's set the scene before we do. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. At this point in our flow, our scene of activity, there are 120 followers of Jesus. They've all gathered in an outer courtyard of the temple. They're in the precincts when we're told that suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And what resulted? Well, we're told that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak wonderful works of God with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, since this outer courtyard was a public location and close proximity to the rest of the temple itself. And since Jerusalem was filled with many pilgrims who had traveled from all over the world there to celebrate uh, the Feast of First Fruits, the day of Pentecost, hearing this sound, Luke tells us it didn't take very long for a large, diverse group of religious men to come to the location where this had taken place. They arrive at the scene hoping to investigate what's taking place. Now Luke tells us that their initial investigation produced confusion. Why? Well, because everyone heard them, this group of 120 followers of Jesus, speaking in their own language. But the more they observed, the more bizarre the circumstance. We're told that first they were confused, but then they marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language? Now, the progression of this scene is important for our understanding. For starters, everyone present. And you have two groups of people. You have the 120 followers of Christ there in what we might call Solomon's portico. And then you also have another group. We'll just refer to them as the bystanders. And they were hearing the wonderful works of God being proclaimed in their own native language. So that's stage one. Now, that was abnormal in its own right. You see, the situation became compounded by the reality that upon first and further investigation, they begin to note that they're Galileans, which meant that like the most natural explanation for why they're hearing all these languages is removed. The most natural explanation is that the group that's proclaiming the wonderful works of God in so many different languages were multilingual folks. They, they were educated. They, they were people who had the ability to actually speak natively in all these different languages. But they look and they're like, wait a second, they're Galileans, which removes the first natural logical explanation that they were speaking in all these dialects because they knew the dialects. Now, this reality left these bystanders with one of two conclusions. First, there were those who rejected what they were seeing, and instead still attempted to provide a natural explanation for what was occurring. This group tried to rationalize what the event was unfolding, how the event was unfolding by asserting that those speaking in these tongues were, look at it, they were full of new wine. They were drunk, which was an entirely unfounded accusation. So there was this first group of bystanders. They rejected what was happening. They didn't want to read a supernatural explanation. The first natural explanation has been removed, that, that they could actually speak in the languages. They see their Galileans. That's not possible. So we're just going to chalk it up to their drunk. So they rejected what was happening, tried to find an explanation for it. Then there were those who accepted what they were seeing. 
They recognize the supernatural elements behind it. And instead of seeking an explanation as to how this was occurring, what did they do? They simply wanted to know what it meant. Luke said most of these bystanders, they had this question. This question, what could this mean? Now, there's a side point I want to make this morning. There are some things that will happen in life that will possess no natural explanation. Some of them can be good things, but often they're not. Sometimes things happen in life that just can't be explained. As a matter of fact, any attempt to provide a natural explanation will leave you with nothing but unfounded accusations, assertions. You see, many times, instead of asking God to provide you with an explanation for why this is happening, you would be wise to ask God to reveal to you the deeper meaning. They're there. They see what's happening. And they don't ask. This fascinates me. They don't ask for an explanation of why it's happening. Like, how in the world is that happening? Instead, they want to know what it means. And I think that's great spiritual intuition. Now, there's these two reactions. And they establish for us the framework for a sermon that Peter is about to give where he will defend against the accusation of drunkenness before providing the ultimate answer to their question, what could this mean? Verse 14, chapter two, join me. But Peter, standing up with the 11, he raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is, the, it is only the third hour of the day. Now let's unpack the text. But Peter standing up with the 11. This is unusual. You see, when the rabbis taught, it was customary that the teacher would sit and the audience would stand. It helped the audience stay awake in a long Bible study. And yet Peter does just the opposite, doesn't he? We're told that he stands up and presumably the audience sits down. Now, 50 days before this, Peter and the 11 had been given the opportunity to take a stand when Jesus had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Tragically, 11 of them ran and hid, while Peter, to his credit, tried to defend Jesus with the edge of his sword. That didn't work out so well, and by the end of the evening, he had denied Jesus three times. However, 50 days later, when the opportunity to take a stand for Christ was presented again here in Acts chapter two. We see a remarkable change in posture, don't we? 50 days earlier, they had a chance to take a stand. They ran and they hid. They, they, they were like little girls. They were scared. But now, when given the opportunity to stand for Jesus, they stood up. They were bold. They were tenacious. They demonstrated courage. And then they begin to provide an explanation for what's taking place. Now, what's the difference between the garden and Pentecost. I think there's two things that contribute to this change in posture. First, they had experienced failure. They had failed. They had been given an opportunity once before and they totally blew it. They were embarrassed by it. They had abandoned Jesus in his time of need. Total fail, epic fail. And yet, what also took place, Jesus had forgiven them, right? They had failed, and Jesus had come along and said, yeah, shocker, you're a failure. I get it, but I love you. 
and I've got plans for you and I'm not through with you. You see, they had experienced failure and they had also experienced forgiveness. And so now when they were given another opportunity, they had learned from their mistakes. Wait, I, I've learned this lesson before. I got a big fat F on the, the report card, but now I get to take the test again. And instead of running when they're asked this question, they stood up. They had experienced failure and forgiveness, and now they were motivated. But we have to mention that they had received the power of the Holy Spirit when the Spirit had come upon them. The Holy Spirit, coupled with forgiveness, it's a wonderful remedy. Now, Luke is specific that though standing with the 11, Peter raised his voice. Now, first, this detail is important for as we mentioned last week, it's a clear indicator that he is now communicating to the crowd, to the audience, using the universal language known as Koine Greek. As mentioned, tongues ceased when Peter preached. For a more expounded explanation, I refer to your last Sunday's Bible study. Now, before we look at the sermon itself, the sermon Peter's about to give, I want to give you just kind of a few things to consider before we even dive in. First, do you know that this is Peter's first sermon? Like, he'd never, ever taught a sermon that we have recorded. Like, he was just one of the apostles palling around with Jesus. He had never spoken publicly in such a manner before. And there's quite an audience. So he's never taught a sermon. This is the first sermon that we have recorded of Peter. It won't be his last. Secondly, Peter spontaneously reacted to an opportunity God presented. You know, Peter didn't wake up this morning thinking to himself that he would be preaching to thousands. No, he and the others woke up very similar to the previous nine days since Jesus had ascended, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then, without warning, suddenly, the Spirit was poured out, people gathered seeking an explanation, and Peter found himself in the spotlight. He stepped out to provide an answer to their questions. The third thing that I find interesting, first, he had never taught a sermon before. It's a spontaneous reaction. But you know, those spontaneous, Peter had been prepared by Jesus for three years for just this moment. It's a spontaneous reaction, but you know, we can say with confidence that Peter was well-prepared. Spending three years in the tutelage of Jesus would prepare you. Peter had not only experienced top-notch Bible teaching. Jesus' first occupation was a preacher. He's constantly going from town to town, preaching, opening the word, expounding from scripture. Peter's present at all this. So he's, he's sat under great Bible teaching. He's developed good Bible knowledge, but he's also seen how Jesus would present the text from a very practical standpoint. If you're gonna be a preacher, sitting at the feet of the best preacher is probably a good thing. And though the words flowed spontaneously from Peter's mind and his heart, we find that he's simply communicating things that he had been previously taught. As we'll see, Peter. Peter could communicate these things. Why? Because he had deeply considered these truths and he believed them with all of his heart. Now, I've heard it said, if you can't teach another person a certain precept, it's often a clear indicator that you don't know that precept yourself. It's also been said, 
that you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you don't know. Peter could only preach, could only teach, because he had been taught and he had learned, he had absorbed, and now he's communicating. It should also be pointed out that we have recorded that what we have recorded in regards to the sermon in Acts 2 is only a small portion of what Peter actually said. Acts 2 verse 40 tells us, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. Like almost all of the sermons that we'll find in the book of Acts and also in Scripture, what we have recorded seems to be only a portion, a Holy Spirit-inspired abridgment of a much longer message, which I take great solace in. Because that means that Peter preached a long message. <laughs> you know, you read through it and you're like, man, that's a pretty powerful message. And that took me like seven minutes to read. And yet I teach for 50 minutes on Sunday. Now it's just the cliff notes. It's what we're getting. Now the fourth point I want to kind of bring to your attention is that Peter, it shouldn't be any surprise, but he had been empowered by the Holy Spirit for the task. He had never taught a sermon before. This was a spontaneous opportunity, reaction to an opportunity. Jesus had prepared him, but the Holy Spirit had empowered him. We're told, we're told, but Peter, but Peter. As we mentioned in our examination of the last few verses of Acts chapter one, I believe that God included the story of Peter's sincere but ill-advised decision to choose Matthias as a replacement for Judas, specifically to illustrate the profound and essential impact the power of the Holy Spirit has in the life of a believer. Peter's kind of our principal example to a greater point we need to understand. In Acts 1, we see Peter using a natural gift, leadership. And yet, the reality of Acts chapter 1 is that Peter was leading. He was stepping out using a gift in the flesh under the natural power of his gifting. Whereas now in Acts chapter 2, is he stepping out under his own power? under his own ability, under his own equipping. No, he's stepping out after experiencing the filling power of the Holy Spirit. It is a profound premise to our understanding of Holy Scripture. But I am convinced that the Spirit often equips us, not with supernatural gifts foreign to our psychological makeup, but by providing a supernatural infusing of the gifts God has already equipped us with from birth. As mentioned, the Holy Spirit fills me, that's not going to make me any more tone deaf. It's not going to give me this incredible songbird style ability. Why? Because my genetics come from Sandy Adams, who can't keep a tune. That's where I get it. it, it worshiping while you're standing next to my father is one of the most frustrating things in all of the world. Because he's standing there, I mean, just pouring his heart before the Lord and you're looking at it and you're like, that's awesome, that's great, but I can't sing right now because the ringing in my ears from how off key and off tune, man, I hope that's joyful to Jesus because that's miserable to me. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He takes our natural abilities and he infuses them with the Spirit of God to do great things. 
Though we might be a new creation in Christ Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit, we are still very much a manifestation of what our genetics have dictated us to be. Peter, but Peter. See, Peter stood out. Why? Because he was the natural choice. He was the leader. You know, anytime you see a list of the disciples in Scripture, Peter's always listed number one because his natural makeup made him a great leader and a good spokesperson. Now, the first thing that Peter addresses in his sermon was this accusation concerning drunkenness. And his defense is based in simple logic. These are not drunk, as you're supposing. Why? Since it is only the third hour of the day. The third hour of the day would have made it 9 a.m., which means in order for them to have been drunk, they would have had to been going all night long. Unlikely. Also, it doesn't seem like if they had started drinking with breakfast, a Bloody Mary or something, that they would now be sloshed to this point. Not only did it not make sense in this logical standpoint, but culturally, it didn't make sense either. You see, during the Jewish feasts, most of the Hebrew people would refrain from not just drinking alcohol, but eating and drinking anything until they had gone to the temple and completed their religious duties. So Peter's like, it's 9 a.m., there's no way any of us are drinking. First, that's just like really too early to be drinking. Secondly, like we haven't even eaten anything. We haven't even had water because we're here. We had come to complete our religious duties. This is just not logical. John Stott, he commented, nor must we add, did the believer's experience of the Spirit's fullness seem to them or look to others like intoxication because they had lost control of their normal mental and physical functions? No, no. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not the loss of it. Verse 16, but Peter continues, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And now he quotes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And it came to pass in the last days, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter starts, but this is what? After providing a logical rebuttal for their unfounded accusation of them being drunk, now Peter provides a biblical rebuttal to the allegation. It should be pointed out that Peter, he addresses their assertion, how? By giving a Bible study. I think that shouldn't be overlooked. You know, as we'll see, Peter moving forward, will expound upon God's word. He will base his conclusions upon God's word. Not his opinion of God's word, but by what God's word has to say. He doesn't spend his time here postulating his own theories or talking about the politics of the day. Rather, Peter goes straight to the word of God to provide the explanation for what's occurring. He tells them, what you are seeing it should not be a mystery or some grand surprise if you understand scripture. See, Peter's telling them that an event of similar style and characteristics was spoken of prophetically 
by the prophet Joel. I want to make an observation before we get to the the particulars here. Understand, this is where I think that the charismatic church gets it horribly wrong. But the Spirit of God will never contradict the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will never contradict or act in conflict to the Spirit of the Word. And this is important. For though the Holy Spirit yields supernatural results in our lives, in order for us to remain grounded, to be supernaturally natural and not supernaturally weird, we have to hold fast to the Word of God. We have to remain grounded when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. We should always have a biblical basis for everything that's done in the name of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never contradict the Word of God. Now, Peter, note, he did not say what was happening on Pentecost was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. I think a lot of commentators actually kind of get this whole passage a little bit skewed. He didn't say that what's happening, but this is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel was saying. No, all he's saying is that it's something similar to what had been spoken of by the prophet Joel. To be spoken of doesn't necessarily mean that it's the fulfillment of. You see, in his prophetic book, Joel spends the majority of his time describing events that will occur in what we call the last days, when the Messiah would return to judge the earth. Still a future event. Obviously, from Peter's own quotation, it would seem inappropriate to view the fulfillment of the things spoken of by Joel as occurring on the day of Pentecost. Why? Well, you know, we don't have recorded when all this is happening. Wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. There's no blood and fire and vapor of smoke, nor do we see or read that the sun was turned into darkness and the moon into blood. All of these things you can find referencing events in the book of Revelation. Now with this in mind, there are two ways you can view Peter's reference to Joel's prophecy. I think both are okay. I tend to gravitate toward the second. The first is that Peter believed Pentecost started a prophetic period of time known as the last days, which would ultimately culminate in Jesus' second coming. David Guzik points to this belief when he commented, and I quote, it may be helpful to see the last days as something like a season, a general period of time, more than a specific period such as a week. And the whole span of God's plan for human history, we are now in the season of the last days. But I disagree. You see, I think the other way of looking at this is that Peter saw in this future prophecy concerning the last days something of a biblical example for what was presently happening on the day of Pentecost. This means that Peter saw in the last days events described by Joel prophetically a parallel to what was now occurring here in Jerusalem on this day. In context with the rest of his writings, Joel describes an event in history when the Spirit of God is poured out on the nation of Israel leading up to the second coming of Jesus when he establishes a physical kingdom on the earth. But in like manner, in a paralleled sense, the Spirit of God is now being poured out on the church, the end result of Jesus' first coming when he came to establish a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men. Peter draws this parallel, and I think it's important and logical. 
J. Vernon McGee explains Peter's purpose this way. Peter quotes this passage to these mockers to show them that the pouring out of the Spirit of God should not be strange to them. All that Peter is saying in his introduction is, now look, this is not a strange or contrary kind of event. The day is coming when this will be fulfilled. Today, we're seeing something similar to it. I agree. Peter dismisses the accusation of drunkenness with a logical explanation, 9 a.m. And then he explains that if they knew scripture, they would have known that when God pours out his spirit on flesh, that it results in a spiritual manifestation. In regards to this future example referenced by Joel, we're told that in the last day, sons and daughters, men servants and maid servants, what will they do? They will prophesy. That's a gift of the spirit. Young men will have visions and old men will dream dreams. I have no idea what visions and dreams are. They're not referenced in any of the gifts of the Spirit. This seems to be unique to this time period with the nation of Israel. I've heard it said that the difference, uh, the difference between young men and old men or how you know you're getting older is that when you go from having visions to dreaming dreams, you know you're getting older. That'll settle in later, I promise. And this present manifestation of the Spirit, what do we see? We see the gift of tongues. So in this future, Spirit's poured out and there is prophecy. In this instance, the Spirit's poured out and what? We see tongues. And so Peter's just pointing to a future event to provide an explanation that things happen when the Spirit's poured out on people. Now he transitions to the core of their question. What does this mean? Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he continues, Men of Israel, hear these words. It's impassioned. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now, in order to answer their question, what does Peter do? He shifts the subject matter to whom? The person of Jesus. As we've mentioned before, everyone in this group, these devout religious Jewish men present for the feast of first fruits, they were all familiar with Jesus. No one, uh, no one was like, uh, had their, their, their head in the sand in the sense that they, they weren't aware of who Jesus was, who this person was. As you yourselves know, you know that this Jesus, a man of God, he's attested by God before you. How? By miracles, wonders, signs that God did through him and your midst. Peter is literally saying that all of these miracles, these signs, these wonders, that they had seen Jesus do in their midst were nothing more than God working through him in order to affirm, to exhibit, to bring into view who Jesus really was. So he transitions to Jesus, a man of God that they knew because God had attested him through all these signs and these wonders, him, verse 23, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now, this is when things begin to get a little awkward. Peter begins to kind of throw down. He presents the events here of Christ's arrest, his trial, his death by crucifixion, but he does it I don't know if you noticed it, in a very theologically profound 
in kind of complex way. You see, Peter, in just one verse, what does he do? He balances God's sovereign will with man's free choice. You see, on one side of the coin, Peter is clear that Jesus' destiny had been sealed by two things. First, the determined purpose of God. The Greek phrase for determined purpose, I'm not going to try to pronounce. We'll put it on the screen. But it means literally the appointed will of God. And it was by the foreknowledge of God. The Greek word foreknowledge is prognosis, meaning prearrangement. It's from, obviously, we get our English word prognosis, meaning the likely course. So we have two things, the determined purpose of God and the foreknowledge of God leading Jesus to this destiny. It literally means that God's appointed will set the course for Jesus. But Peter flips the coin because he doesn't let them off the hook for their involvement, does he? He says, these things were at work leading Jesus to the cross, but you... You, you took him by lawless hands. You crucified him. You put him to death. But God, verse 24, raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, Peter's sermon, it starts by transitioning to the person of Jesus. You knew that Jesus was sent by God. Then Peter discusses Jesus' death. So you knew he was sent by God, but you took him anyway and killed him, put him to death. Now Peter addresses the rumor. The rumor that you can imagine had been taking the region by storm for the last 50 days. What rumor? That Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. Now, for a moment, I think we lose this when we're reading a passage like this. You have this this group, this, this group of bystanders. Imagine what it had been like to have been one of them, to have been a bystander in Jerusalem over the last 50 days or two months. You were aware upon arriving for Passover that Jesus, he was a controversial rabbi. Whether or not you had ever been exposed to his ministry, you knew that he was kind of upsetting the status quo, rocking the apple cart. You were there when Jesus enters Jerusalem and they're waving these palm branches and they're laying down coats and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. You were aware of the buzz that he could very well be the Messiah, the promised king. It was exciting. You were there to witness the dialogue, to hear the dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders over this this week. You saw things begin to reach a boiling point. You might've even been present to see them arrest Jesus unjustly, to try him illegally, to crucify him without mercy. You were there. You experienced all the weird supernatural phenomenon that accompanied his death, the sky going dark, the tombs being opened, the veil being torn. You were also aware of the controversy that began to circulate three days later after the Sabbath. Now, the explanation of the religious leaders that the disciples stole the body, that didn't make sense to you. And though over the next 40 days, person after person after person was coming forward claiming to have had an encounter with a resurrected Jesus, that seemed kind of unbelievable at best. Now, on Pentecost, you're there. This scene is taking place. And those involved are doing what? They're claiming that Jesus, the guy you've seen 
crucified with your own eyes is actually the one behind what is taking place. You see, knowing how incredible all this sounded, Peter once again turns to Scripture to show how all of these things should not have been unbelievable, but had been foretold prophetically. For verse 25, David says concerning him, and then he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence, men and brethren. Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body or a descendant, according to his flesh, he would raise up as the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning, and this is him providing the explanation of Psalm 16, he spoke here concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not to be left in Hades, nor his flesh to see corruption. Now, before quoting Psalm 16, Peter sets the stage, doesn't he? He says, for David says concerning him. And in context, who's the him that he's referring to? David spoke concerning Jesus. Now, understand, the rabbinical teaching on Psalm 16 claimed that David was actually only speaking in this passage concerning himself. And while it is true that there are elements of this scripture that no doubt reference his own death, Peter points out that this one statement alluding to the resurrection, where David says, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow, and then look at the phrase, your holy one to see corruption. See, because David was dead and buried, Peter makes the argument that David had to have been speaking in this passage prophetically concerning the Messiah. This descendant of David, who would what? Who would die, but be resurrected. Now, Peter's presentation has been methodical. First, Jesus had been sent by God, tested by signs and wonders. You knew this, but what did you do? You killed him. Anyway, and now he provides a biblical basis for the idea that Scripture predicted that the Messiah would die, and then what? Be resurrected. Now he drops the hammer. This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we, and no doubt I can see him pointing to everyone present, are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says concerning himself, and then he quotes Psalms 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, now, their original question, right, was what? What does this, speaking of this Holy Spirit being poured out, this manifestation, what does this mean? And Peter's answer, following his crucifixion, by which you're guilty of doing, God resurrected Jesus. God raised up Jesus to life, of which we're all witnesses. We witness the resurrection as it had been predicted to occur in Scripture by David. Then Peter says that what happened? That Jesus 
ascended to heaven. Where what? Where he was now exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then he poured out this, underline this, which you now see and hear. Their question, what does this, what is this? The Spirit of God being poured out on all men mean? That's their question. His answer, in a roundabout way, simple. What this means is that it's proof that Jesus is not only alive, but is now calling the shots from heaven. Following the answer, Peter provides the implications for this reality. Okay, so what you're seeing, that's evidence, folks. The guy you killed, God resurrected, he ascended to heaven, he sent his spirit to us. So because his spirit's coming, it's proof that Jesus ascended. He couldn't have ascended if he hadn't been resurrected. Logical uh, run of the mill. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. (laughs) Don't forget, this was the group of people that had killed Jesus, that he had run from earlier. A little girl, aren't you one of his followers? And he curses her out. And now he's standing up and he's providing this incredible Bible study, logically laying out everything that's happening, and then he lays out the implications. And man, the boldness of Peter is palpable. Peter is unashamed. God sent the Messiah. He validated him by miracles and signs and wonders. You saw it. But what did you do? You rejected him, then you killed him, but God resurrected him. And now, He is both Kyros, or Lord, Master, and Christos, or Christ. (laughs) My first observation is that, that Peter, Peter spoke the truth without fear. And don't overlook the point. Peter, did he give a rip about what anyone in society thought of him? No. also seems pretty evident that Peter didn't even care if he offended his audience. He just called them all murderers, that they had rejected the very savior that God had sent. He didn't care what they thought about him. He doesn't care if the truth offended them. He wasn't concerned what they might do to him. You see, the congregation that God had assembled that day were not Peter's customers that he was present to serve. They were there, he was called to present the truth to. Peter's sermon, simple, it's profound, it's biblically based. God sent Jesus, you rejected and killed him, but God has resurrected and exalted him and made him Lord and Christ, so what are you gonna do about it? He talks about sin. He talks about the cross. He talks about anything and everything that major churches in America won't dare use. The sermon Peter preached, I would take the guess, would 
not be allowed in various churches in our area. My second observation is that Peter allowed the Holy Spirit to apply the message. That's kind of curious where to stop the study this morning. Because I'm like, I want to get through this sermon. I want to do it justice. But how do I, how do I wrap it up? And then I started thinking about it. You know, it's interesting, but following the presentation of truth and making it clear what the implications of this truth happen to be. (laughs) You rejected him, but it doesn't change who he is. He is Lord and Christ, and you'll stand before him one day. What does he do? Peter does not provide a call to action, does he? It's not as though in the sermon we get to this point, now Peter's like, now everyone, close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm not going to make this weird, but we're going to ask you to come forward so that you feel weird. No, there's not a call to action. We'll, we'll get to it next week, but verse 37 simply says, now when they heard this, they were convicted. They were cut to the heart. Then they're like, what do we do? The Holy Spirit applied the message. Peter just spoke the truth, gave some implications, and then let the Holy Spirit impress it on the hearts of the audience. And we see that they were convicted. Now, this is not always the case. Matter of fact, the next sermon we'll look at in chapter three, Peter indeed does provide a call to repentance, a call to action. But in this instance, we're told that the multitude experienced a conviction brought on by the Holy Spirit independent of Peter's solicitation. They cried out for Peter to explain what's next. What do we do? This morning, I don't have a place to end this study but maybe we'll just kind of leave it at the point where we'll let the Holy Spirit end it. See, over the next few minutes, we're just gonna worship the Lord. 